Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much. We're anxious to start our program uh, because we know you're uh, looking forward to hearing from our panel. So as uh, Shakespeare said, brevity is the soul of wit. I may not be witty, but hopefully I'll be brief for the benefit of everyone here. Um, the, uh, please also join me in welcoming now our television viewing audience and webcast viewers. We'd like to thank Rogers, and they will be broadcasting this panel in the days to come. And also thank you to MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming today's discussion. Again, my name is Danny Asaf, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto and being your host today. Thank you again for taking time from your schedules to join us. For over 119 years, the Canadian Club has been proud to provide Canadians with this closely guarded, nonpartisan venue for the free and open exchange of ideas to engage Canadians on issues and topics that matter to us all. Through our programs and our events, through our youth and young leaders programs, our diversity partnerships, joint events, and media and social opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political, business, and social figures, both from abroad and right here at home. And please feel free to uh, look us up on our website at canadianclub.org to learn more about our events. And also you can join the conversation via Twitter at CDNCLBTO. Now I would like to take a moment to extend our gratitude and thanks to today's event sponsors, namely EY, Societe Generale, and Tories LLP. Thank you very much for supporting our breakfast event today. And again, we would also like to thank Air Canada for its role as the official airline sponsor of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Now, I would like to take a brief opportunity to introduce our panel. A recent study found that our top 10 pension panels accounted for and manage over $1.1 trillion in assets. That represents approximately 45% of our Canadian GDP. So clearly, as we look to the future and to the future of Canada's prosperity, pension funds and these leading pension funds will clearly play a very strong role in many ways. At home, they will continue to be the drivers and the, and the strength of our investment industry. They will also be key developers and investors in the 21st, infrastructure, 21st century infrastructure that we're all looking forward to seeing. And also providing that security and certainty of our retirement and our old age our old age security as our population grows old. Internationally, they will continue to be the front foot of Canadian influence and prestige as we see through transactions such as the Chicago Skyway where these three great pension funds cooperated. They will continue to be hubs, hubs of global talent and magnets for this expertise from around the world that will benefit all Canadians. And as well, they will continue on behalf of all Canadians to allow us to benefit and tap in to the growing wealth in places far away. But this will only happen with the exceptional and strong leadership that is exemplified by these gentlemen that have come together today. So first, I'd like to briefly introduce people that really need no introduction in this town and in this country and internationally, as a matter of fact. First, Mark Wiseman the President and Chief Executive Officer of CPPIB, and the Board invests on behalf of 18 million contributors to this country, and really a foundation and a bedrock of all of our uh, sec future security. Mark Wiseman joined the Board of CPPIB in 2015 and assumed the role of President and CEO in 2012. He's a lawyer and former Supreme Court clerk. He's won accolades around the world for his work both in investment and also continues to be a thought leader and a leading Canadian on issues such as better governance, economic development in this country. Ontario Teachers Pension Plan 
is also has the distinction of being Canada's largest single profession pension plan. With almost $154 billion in assets, it pays the pensions and invests on behalf of 311,000 working and retired teachers. And with almost $154 billion in net assets, uh, Ron Mock has headed Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan since 2014. He joined Ontario Teachers 15 years ago, bringing with him over 25 years of international experience in investments and finance. Originally an electrical engineer who has worked and served on Canada, some of Canada's leading institutions, including Ontario Hydro, Montreal Exchange, BMO Nesbitt Burns, and later even founded Phoenix Resource Research and Trading. Next, I'd like to introduce uh, Michael Latimer, established, uh, uh, the president and CEO of OMERS. Established in 1962, OMERS provides defined pension plan benefits to local government employees and retirees and beneficiaries in Ontario on behalf of over 1,000 employers. In, Michael has over 40 years of investment experience and in 2014 assumed his current role, role as president and chief executive officer. Michael's investment career has spanned leading roles across both private and public markets with roles at the office of George Weston, Limited, Trizac Hahn, and CFO, CEO of Oxford Properties. And in 2012 and 2013, he was recognized as one of the world's most influential asset owners. Moderating today's panel is Pamela Ritchie, the anchor of Bloomberg TV, Canada's, uh, TV, Bloomberg TV Canada's The Daily Brief. Ms. Ritchie is an experienced and influential financial reporter who has previously, uh, a, was previously a broadcast journalist at the Business News Network prior to joining Bloomberg TV. Panelists, please join us at the front. Ms. Ritchie, I would like to now offer you the Canadian Club podium. This podium is now yours. Thank you very much. There's no assigned seating, so you can sit where you like. Thank you very much, Danny. And just wanted to start by saying today is February 29th, and we'll just go back in history for a couple of seconds here. In 1944, on February 29th, a leap year, the soon-to-be or the later-to-be Pope John Paul II was run over by a Nazi truck, and that apparently led him to go into the priesthood. In 1960, Hugh Hefner opened the first Playboy Club in Chicago on the leap year. And in 1968, the Beatles won the top Grammy for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's band um, album. So it's an important day, and we don't have too many of them, so we'll get on with it. I'll just point out also that workers around the world have uh, figured out that they, uh, once every four years, work one day more and don't get paid for it. So there's a universal push for a bank holiday. So far, that hasn't been succeeded on, though. So welcome to you all. Glad that you could be here. Um, first of all, I want to get a, a lay of the land of how pension funds have changed the investment environment in Canada over the course of the last couple of decades. And Michael, Michael Latimer, I'll begin with you on... Um, how you feel your organization has changed and how it has become one of the top employers. Really, all of them have, but I'll, I'll begin with your experience of that. You know, I, um, let me start by saying, Pamela, I think I remember all those events you described, so when I, when I <laughs> described 40 years, that, that kind of dates me. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because the, um, when you think about the, the pension fund community, um, it, it substantially changed over the last, you know, 20 years, more probably more particularly the last 10 years. When I think about when I started my own career, I think about what the pillars of, of we described as industry at the time. They were the banks, the, the trusts, the investment banks, the life codes. And frankly, the pension community really wasn't something that you were familiar with because it, don't, it, it wasn't scaled. We weren't managing our own capital. You kind of fast forward to today, I mean, the banks have absorbed the, the, um, the trusts, the investment banks. We still have the life codes. And I think what you're watching today is the role that, that um, uh, with CPPIB and teachers and many others uh, and ourselves, the role that we play as part of that financial community and the community in, in general. And so our, the size of, of the pools of capital that we are today, the things that we do, 
um, you know, how we employ people, uh, how we invest. It's, it's been quite a significant change, uh, Pamela, that I think you've watched, particularly over the last 10, 10 to 12 years. And Ron, I'll, I'll pick up on that on, on the talent side of things, a, a real sharing of talent within the financial community. And I, and I wonder how people are more and more drawn to come to work for the pension funds, which increasingly are extremely international organizations and provide those opportunities. I think that's been one of the biggest changes in the last decade. Uh, the speed with which pension plans in Canada have, be, have gone global, uh, global offices, uh, managing talent on a global scale, managing risk on a global scale. Those are big, big changes. So um, we're recruiting in, in Asia. We're recruiting in uh, Europe, as uh, other plans are. And certainly Toronto has become a real mecca for uh, the kind of talent that we need in order to operate on a global scale and make investments on a global scale. And uh, I think when you, when you leave... Canada and you talk about the Canadian pension plans on a global scale, uh, it, it's amazing the stature that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and that clearly is a talent attraction opportunity. It is, and also internationally, uh, Mark, it's a, a bit of a surprise sometimes. It still seems, though this, is, this model of yours has been going on for, for years and decades at this point. People are still surprised that little old Canada is buying up these incredible assets all over the world. Um, do, you, do you still get met with a little bit of surprise, or do you feel like that's fully entrenched at this point? I, I think increasingly um, the Canadian funds are, are understood for their degree of sophistication. And I think that really goes to the points that both um, uh, Michael and Ron made. And I think the thing that really sets um, the Canadian plans apart is the degree of sophistication that we, we bring uh, to the table. And I think what's really important to understand in that regard is it, it comes down to governance. And the governance structure that we have developed in Canada and the expertise that we've developed around governance um, really does in, make in a difference. In other companies or Well, let's in just your start own? with the pension plans itself. And okay. I think the pension plans are now pushing for the importance of governance in the companies that we own. Uh, and I think it's important to say that the companies that we own on behalf of our uh, um, our beneficiaries. But the governance of the Canadian plans is really, really different um, from almost anywhere else in the world. And what's, what's different about it is the fact of this arm's length operating model uh, from governments. And having that arm's length operating model is what then allows these plans, first Ontario teachers, uh, OMERS, and then uh, the CAS and, and uh, eventually CPPIB, um, to develop the type of expertise in investments with a very, very clear, um, a very, very clear mandate to maximize risk-adjusted returns without policy intervention getting in the way, and that really is unique um, about the Canadian model. And do you find, with um, first of all, trying to influence governance within companies for a much longer-term view? This is this has been a focus of. Um, Canadian pension plans and, and also a British effort to make sure that companies are looking more long-term. Does it allow you to then go in and help and ask some of the questions that maybe you want to know? I mean, recently, I think CPPIB asked Anglo-American, Rio Tinto, uh, Glencore for some real clarity on how they think climate change is going to affect their business. Does it allow you that conversation where you say, we're going to be in here, we want to invest but we also want to know exactly how you think things are going to affect your business in a long-term model. I'll, I'll just start with the conversations you have with companies you own. Yeah, I think I, I think it's um, I think that's true. I, but I, you know, if I step back for a second, I think it, it it starts with the leadership that actually had you know Mark talked about the governance model. The governance model starts you know within your own plan, and so I think as, as the standard that you actually set is a very high standard. I think that the pension fund community holds itself to a very high standard. And so as you, as you think about that, those standards then cascade down. So when you think about corporations, we think about in, investments that we'd make, whatever the jurisdiction, whatever the corporation, um, we want to make sure that we actually have uh, a voice about when we put our capital to work. And that's part of the, you know, the active, you know, our being active investors. How have you seen companies change based on that approach? Uh, you know, frankly, I think it's early. I think that part of what you're seeing today is uh, first you need leadership, and I think you're seeing that demonstrated for the things that gentlemen uh, next to me are, are actually doing. So that's the first thing. You change the conversation. You have to change the conversation. All of those things take time. 
And so the things that you, you know, when you go out and you, you start those conversations, a lot of times it falls on, on deaf ears. You don't see the results quickly. It's, it's no different from kind of the, the panel where we started, you know, when you asked the question really about the change in the pension fund community. When we started down this road uh, 12, 14 years ago, I mean, the point is people were looking at what we were doing and, and frankly, really questioning the things that we were doing. And I think now when you take a view of what's happening, it's very mainstream. So I think a lot of the conversations that are being started today and the approaches that are being taken, those results, we're not going to see those results, tangible results, for probably a, you know, a period of time. But you have to start, and I think that's part of what's actually taking place. Where, where you see this governance model really start to play out? In, in, in Canada, in the States, in developed Europe, uh, you, know, you expect a, a reasonably high level of governance. But when you're operating, like all of us here, in multiple countries, multiple uh, continents, you're all through South America, you're operating through China, India, uh, different countries, emerging markets. There's where the governance model that comes out of Canada really has to come in with a relatively, with a very strong hand. Picking your partners, understanding who you're actually partnering with on a global scale to make sure that the governance standards and model that we would have here and expect here were actually having an impact in emerging markets. That, that's a huge implication of us transporting this, this model globally. And Mark, is it easier when you go to some places abroad and you're getting in perhaps in early stages in companies, less entrenched, perhaps Canadian companies don't want to hear what they're supposed to be doing on a management level, but is it any easier globally? Well, I think it's um, I think it's it's getting easier, and that people understand that good governance. When you start taking a long-term perspective, the same as having uh, good uh, environmental standards in your company, the same as having good labor practices in your company, the same as controlling uh, your supply chain appropriately. As you start taking a long-term perspective, what happens is that those issues converge. Those are no longer issues about morality. Um, those are issues about pricing. And um, I think that's something that is really, really important, that as we start taking this longer-term perspective, the convergence of governance and social issues and environmental issues, uh, along with the way that you price an, ash, uh, price an asset, uh, become one and the same. So I think that's the other thing that really sets the Canadian plans apart, is the long-term view that they take around their ownership, whether that's in a public company or in a private company. And, and very simply, if you start thinking about the long term, um, you care about what, the, what the, the carbon sequestration policy is of the companies that you're investing in. You care about what their labor practices are. You care about their governance. And frankly, we believe the companies that are better governed, among other things, will be more valuable in the long run. And so the long term perspective that's demonstrated by the Canadian plans I think makes that uh, governance discussion much easier because it becomes a question about price. It becomes a question about the value of the company. But and let, interestingly, just, just sorry, one, I mean, interestingly, you talk about, Ron talked about emerging markets. One thing is that's quite interesting is some of these markets, particularly in Asia, they actually really get that because these are markets that are dominated by longer-term thinking than we're used to here in North America. Family-owned businesses, a culture that thinks longer-term. And so I think that when we go into some of those markets, we actually... Um, our thinking really resonates, maybe more so than it does in North America. When we look at the infrastructure spending that's about to begin in Canada, um, many of you, I mean, huge parts of your portfolio have to do with infrastructure. Uh, first of all, to all of you, do you think infrastructure in Canada is going to make our economy more viable, $120 billion worth of spending over the course of the next few years? Is that going to help, and will that make Canada a more interesting investment for you? Start with Michael. Well, I hope it makes a difference. I, I, you know, I, I think that, that part of what we, we need to do is we need to think about uh, the rules of engagement. So $125 billion sounds like a significant amount of capital, but it's, it's not as significant when you start to weigh that over a period of time. So part of the way we think about it is clearly we'd like, we'd like to participate at home. We're significant players here in the province of Ontario, just infrastructure alone, and we have uh, give or take around $6 billion of equity that's actually deployed here in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, I think where we step back and we and we ask ourselves is we really need to think about the model that it's going to come out with. We need to really think about you know how that's going to be governed, and we need scale. 
because mm -hmm. you know, where we invest, we're, we're not greenfield investors, we're brownfield investors. So we're going to be looking for, for stability, the quality of the, uh, the, uh, the credit, um, looking at the revenues that are going to be generated, you know, how we actually can be long-term investors, because again, you know, within that asset class, it plays a very important role for us as it matches our liabilities. Right. Ron, what would you need to see, like to see, to invest? You, you need a framework, as Michael was alluding to. You need a framework that is stable. You need a stable... And that means not successive governments switching it, it up after four years. Exactly. That... You know, if you're, if you're going to put two, three, four billion dollars into a, into a project or into a piece of infrastructure, and these aren't usually triple P projects, which tend to be hospitals and schools and things. The investing that goes on globally in the infrastructure space with us tends to be large, larger items. And it's critically important that uh, the regulatory framework be independent and that it be stable. You can't put two to three billion dollars into a country only to find that every four years the rules are changing on you. The tax rules, the way you can structure, how you operate it. And so you have to have basically projects that are pretty much shovel ready. You have to have alignment between the federal and the provincial and the municipal governments, because if you're in an infrastructure project where all three levels are fighting with one another, mm. it's a big problem. You've mentioned Australia has been attractive in the past because they tend to be in line, the three levels of, of uh, governance. Australia's, Canada, how far are we from that? I, I, think there's, I think there's work to be done. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think there's work to be done, but, but I will say I think they've, the, the, the government has heard us collectively around this issue. There's a lot of smart infrastructure investors in this country, uh, all the way out to BC, uh, with BCIMC and others, AIMCO, a lot of smart people. And um, when you think about uh, if we could be, uh, we have to be independent. It can't be a government-initiated kind of uh, thing. We have to remain independent and be able to invest on commercial terms. But I think, I think when I think of infrastructure 15 years down the road, start asking myself, every country that's got great infrastructure prospers over time, but it can't be done on a three-year view or a four-year view. Right. It's got to be done on a tenor. Where's the high-speed trains going to be 15 years from now? Well, we need this kind of thing. And those are the types of examples, Mark, I was going to ask for your views, but also what is the type of infrastructure that creates the most productivity that would be of interest and generates revenue? Okay, so, so first of all, you know, I think government does have a role in determining where to best put those resources to work to determine what you're, where they're going to get the most bang for their buck. But let's, let's start with capital that's available from the, the private sector. And we can talk about the Canadian plants, and we talk about how big the Canadian plants are. The reality is we're pipsqueaks. We're still pipsqueaks on the global stage. So together we said the, the top 10 Canadian plants are 1.1 uh, trillion Canadian dollars. Just put it in perspective. <laughs> Just, just put it in perspective. The, the, the um, just to put it in perspective alone, the government of Japan investment uh, fund, the government of Japan pension plan is 1.3 trillion U.S. dollars. That's just one plan. You can then add up the sovereign wealth funds and. And others. you're competing with what? Say 200 deep-pocketed pools. Well, well, let's not talk about who we're competing globally? with. Let's talk about it. If you are a government in Canada, whose capital you should think about attracting, right? You should be thinking about attracting global capital, and let the Canadian plans come and compete with that global capital. That is what's going to get the citizens of Canada or of Ontario or of Toronto, the first of all, the most capital to come in for critical infrastructure, and it's going to uh, allow for the best pricing uh, of those assets. So we're out there competing in Australia to put money in Australia with global pension plans from Abu Dhabi, from Japan, from Singapore. They want to come to Canada. They want to invest here. Do they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, Canada is a fantastic investment environment. We have a rule of law. Um, we have a, um, you know, attractive set of, of regulation. It is a predictable environment in which to invest. And what governments in this country need to do, and I think they're starting to understand it, is attract global capital, including the Canadian plans. So how do they create that environment? Three how things. Three things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not that hard. And if you read... The World Economic Forum's <clears throat> blueprint on infrastructure investing, it's all set up. And, and, and Michael and Rob's, uh, Michael and, uh, 
Iran said it. Three things. Scale, scalable projects. De-risked assets. So why do investors want to invest in these assets? They want to invest in them because they want predictable cash flows. So by and large, that doesn't. you have to somehow find a way to mitigate the greenfield risk. And then third, um, predictable and stable regulatory so, environment. So give us an example of some projects globally that may not be the ones that we're going to build here, but that hit all those marks. Chicago Skyway. Okay. One that all three of you invested in. Right. A third, a third, a third. Do I want to give you one that's close to home here? Please do. I was hoping um, we'd get there. You know, I think about this because this is something that we've, um, um, I think we've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about. So this is, um, this is right here in our own backyard. It's the city of Toronto, province of Ontario, and it's our federal government, and it's the convention facility. So our convention facility is split into two components. We actually have and own the north piece. The south piece is separate ownership, operation through MTCC, uh, the provincial government. We've been having discussions with all three levels, the city, the province, and the federal government, about the opportunity to take a project that's probably in the magnitude of a billion to a billion, to a billion and a half to two billion dollars to actually take what is probably number 42 in the North American stage for convention facilities, turn it into number 10, you know, that translates into uh, jobs, tens of thousands of jobs. That translates into probably three quarters of a billion dollars into the GDP in this particular, in our, in our province and in, in our city. It has an opportunity to actually capture the innovation agenda that we have. So we take the, the incubator space that we have um, over at, at uh, 111 Richmond Street and we take that, those centers of excellence we translate that over into from 6,000 square feet into uh, somewhere that looks more like 500,000 square feet. That's all before we as a pension plan um, uh, actually put money to work ourselves in the things that would actually happen on the site above grade. So that, that's an opportunity, I think, when I think about that, that hits all of the federal agenda that we have out there today, Pamela. I think it hits the provincial agenda that's out there today. I think it fits with the city agenda that's out there today. So part of this is, is then really creating some sense of urgency around things, having the accountability, having the ownership, and then being able to go and execute. So that, you know, that, when I think about things, forgetting you know, outside of our country, I just think of that right in our back door that it's, we go by. It's a little threadbare, isn't it, the uh, conference facility? Could use a little, uh, little lift. I think you've captured it. Uh, Ron. Uh, and maybe another example or, or just, you know, what we're looking for. Because is there an obligation for the pension funds to help with the infrastructure build-out that we do of this country? Or is it much more a case of obligation to, to the people who are parts of your plans? Um, th there, is, there is no pension obligation to help out. Um, we have to invest globally on commercial terms. And it has to be done in such a way that it could be reviewed by anybody and it makes a lot of sense in terms of what we've done. Um, but there's also the expertise there to be able to do it. Right. And, and so um, uh, Mark's point, which was a good one, is there is a lot of capital that would love to come to Canada, invest in infrastructure, invest in all, all sorts of things, real estate, other things. And this capital coming into Canada... Um, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. The, w when you see senior government officials from Australia, from London, when you see George Osborne show up, and they're, they're actually coming and asking the pension plans to go to the UK, to go to Australia, they're actually out there look, marketing. Look, there's City Airport, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. They're out there marketing. <laughs> they're out there marketing, and they want the capital. And I think we're just getting to the stage in Canada where we're understanding that you kind of have to invite the capital in. You have to make the environment there. You have to understand what is it is that will Is the Trudeau government doing that? I mean, he's got this, this sort of star status. Is he out there doing that? I, I, think, uh, I think the current government is definitely moving rapidly in that direction. And the things that they don't know, they're certainly engaging the people that do know to inquire as to what's the best way to, to pull it off and to make it happen. Um, your thoughts, Mark, on that? Well, look, I, I think, I think the, the government is understanding the need to attract global investment capital. And I think if you look at the model of Australia, just to take something that's reasonably similar to Canada, 
and you look at the amount of capital that has flowed into Australia in order to fund critical infrastructure in that country and what it has done in terms of increasing productivity, increasing GDP, increasing prosperity in that country. Um, I think that the Canadian government is, is looking what's, hap what's happened in Australia, and I think there's a lot that can be learned and applied uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. How about toll roads? Are you pushing for toll roads? We're pushing for any investable, investable asset where we can make a risk-adjusted rate of return to pay long-term pension benefits. So toll like roads toll is roads? one yeah. example that, that, of course, we, we own a significant uh, portion of the 407. Mm -hmm. um, that's but one example of the type of asset that, that we would look to invest in. I would say um, one thing to, 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 to understand is that as important as we are as global infrastructure investors, it still plays actually a reasonably small portion of our portfolio. It's, at CPPIB, right. it's only about 7% of our total portfolio is our infrastructure investment. So we've got right. room to grow um, in that area, but we have to find projects that meet those three critical criteria, scale, um, de-risked assets, and in a predictable regulatory environment. With the conversation around a Brexit, does that make you just stay away from, you've just done this deal, obviously, uh, in the UK, but uh, does it make you, <laughs> does it make you want to, in the future, hang back a bit until things settle down? Are you, are you concerned about that? For us, clearly not. <laughs> yes, I know you are. No, I think the airport's going to serve all those people flying out of London. <laughs> but not if they raise the fees. That's the problem. Well, um, yeah, that, what, what do you think that's, of... That's standard press. You have to, for us, I'm going to come back to an initiative that Mark started, hats off with Dominic Barton, long, long, long-term right. investing. We've been and, talking about that a lot. And, and, yeah. and we, we've, you know, we're, we're in with Mark on this, and, and we think it's critically important, and he's rallied large investors all over the planet uh, to his credit. Um, you know, we have investments in Brazil today, um, which some people would argue, geez, uh, you know. You both do. What's, yeah. what, what's that look like? I actually, we have to look beyond where we think that's going to go because you do and let me ask what uh because when you look at brazil and you look at india which you're actively looking at on sort of a real estate side of things um how important is the sweet spot of demographics to it there's a lot of different things about investing in emerging markets right now that you would probably want to make sure you hit but for instance india and brazil they're in that sweet pot spot of demographics where they have the most number of people who are both working and consuming. They're at that point where not everyone is about to retire and so on. How much of a punch does that pack uh, for you, Mark, when you're, when you're looking at emerging markets? Well, I, you know, in, in, all joking aside, I, th I think Ron's point is, is, is spot on, which is that we have to take a very long-term view. And you have to step back, and it's almost, um, it's almost like looking at a work of art. When you look up close up, you see all the individual brush strokes, but it's very hard to make out um, what the painting is. And when you step back, you, it actually becomes, it becomes clear. We try and do the same thing with markets. You have to step back, stop looking at the noise, stop paying attention um, to the day-to-day -day volatility, and look at those long-term trends that, that you reference. And so whether it's about something like Brexit um, or um, what the next election cycle is going to bring in India um, or whether the Fed is going to cut next week or raise rates next week, if you really step back, it's the longer trends that matter when you're funding liabilities that are 30, 40, or 50 years away. In fact, at CPPIB, we're actually, fun we're actually investing monies on behalf of pensioners who aren't yet born. Think about that for a second. And so what really matters are those long-term demographic trends. And it's why um, there's so much importance in us building capabilities in uh, these growth markets like China, uh, like India, um, like parts of, uh, of, of Latin America. And so if we look at what the world is going to look like, not today, but what the world's going to look like 25, 30, 40 years from now, mm -hmm. you can't ignore those markets. And you are actively all looking at what the world is going to look like that many years, decades down the road. What does the energy complex look like? And, and how all of you, I think, now are are lessening and flipping a little bit more into green-oriented investments, or at least looking at that. What does the world look like in 20 years from now on, on an energy front? What are we using, and what will you invest in? 
Well, I wish I could tell you, panel, I knew exactly what the world was going to look like 20 years from now. I, what I can tell you is, is how we are investing, because I think that transitions us into that, uh, that period. And again, I kind of stay right at, right at home here in what we're doing with Bruce Power. And so that's, a, that's an example with our, with our partner, TransCanada, uh, and our uh, partner with the, which is the province of Ontario, where we're going to uh, refurbish six of the, um, of the eight units. We're going to put to work over the next uh, 20 years um, probably uh, you know, upwards of $20 billion of capital, and that's 30% uh, of the baseload of the province of Ontario. Um, uh, carbon neutral, uh, I think it's uh, you know, plays an important role. So we think about how we participate. In, in all investing, carbon neutral, or it's just a, it's a nice thing to have? Uh, I think it's, well, I think it's more than a nice thing to have. I think we're all very focused on how that, you know, how we transition that through on, on you know, our, uh, from an environmental, social, and governance perspective. I think that, again, you know, uh, where does climate change fit into that? How do we, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, part of that is I think the conversation starts because you, you start that in your own boardroom. Right. You start that with your stakeholders. You start that in your boardroom. That translates into your organization. For us, that translates through our statement of investment beliefs. It's tra it translates through into our statement of investment policies. Um, and the innovation work that, that you do through your fund, um, how much of that is focused on meaningful green technologies? I'd say part of that comes, actually, it comes at two levels. The innovation would not come from what we do with Omer's Ventures. Right. Um, uh, that's more technolo you know, technology, telecommunications. It would really come on the infrastructure side and, and to the extent of where we've put our money in the, in the energy sector. So, again, it's, um, um, I've given you an example of what we've done on Bruce. To an extent, we've, we've uh, invested in wind. Um, but you know where I started, uh, my, the, the, or was, was headed with the conversation is um, um, those conversations that have to flow, you know, through your boardroom and through the, that governance model will set the standards that you're going to manage yourself to. Um, so we understand the priorities; they're very straightforward for us. Um, part of it is also managing the relationships you have with, with your stakeholders. We're a jointly sponsored plan. We have many people who have many different views about the different things I'm that sure, we should be right. doing and how we should be investing. So making sure that we actually have a proper model to actually consider, um, and then at the same time, make sure that we act as a fiduciary. Because to the point that Ron and Mark have made, at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to actually put money to work to pay pensions. There's a long-dated liabilities that we're, that we're managing to. Ron, um, on the, did you take the, the Paris Climate Summit seriously? Uh, yes, in fact, prior to uh, COP21, um, we were quite involved with uh, the UN councils around this issue. Um, we've been on this for quite a long time now. Uh, our, it, it's something that's very important to our members. Mm. And, um, but it's very, very important, and we tell our members, our fiduciary duty is to pay pensions for generations to come. Right. That's our mission. And, and what we do is environmental issues are through a risk lens, Everything we look at, if we buy something, if we buy into a coal-powered plant and all of a sudden the government comes in with a limit that coal is outlawed, right. our equity just went to zero. And so no, we've got to look and, at and the so world. And so how do you avoid the risk. stranded asset issue? Of course, when you're looking that far out, um, you could be investing in something today that absolutely gets cut off in regulation. So I don't know if we can avoid it. What I can tell you is, is we're looking at a, a transition, 10, 20, 30 years, and we've got one foot in the... Um, in the wind, solar, hydro space. We're operating wind farms and solar in eight countries now around the world. And so we're building that part of the portfolio up. We're finding and we're watching where we're investing in coal. And so we're coming out of some and moving into others. But it's not going to be a transition that will happen over the next two, two months or so. Right. I believe that the transparency initiative for companies to actually become much more transparent around this, mm. which Michael Bloomberg is leading, is going to be important as well. He's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. Um, I just wanted to... Uh, nice <laughs> that was That was beautifully delivered. Um, if you have questions, please write them on a card, and I think put your hand up, is that, is that right? And someone will come and collect them. So do that now. <laughs> and I'll remind you in a second, we'll have about 10 minutes at the end for questions. Mark, just wanted to circle back to the idea, again, on transparency. 
you asking Anglo-American um, as well as uh, Glencore and, and Rio Tinto, you know, seriously, what are you doing about climate change and, and how will it affect your business? How, how do you, how well, look, do you get that discussion going and get it, them to answer it? Well, it's very simple. It's very simple. We have to price these assets. In order to price the assets, right. we need information. And, and they so have if you believe, like we do, that these factors, um, including you know, what is your exposure to, to carbon, are important in terms of long-term pricing, if you're going to be a long-term asset owner, you need the information the same way that you need information about the balance sheet, and you need, you need to understand information about executive compensation, and you need to understand information about a company's strategy, their customers. The other piece that you need is information about about those ESG factors, including carbon, including supply chain management, so including labor practices. And you need those things in order to make a good decision on how you're going to price that asset. And so companies have to understand that for sophisticated investors to be able to buy their shares and to be able not to put a discount in terms of what we're going to ascribe to their value, we need better and more transparent information. Is that information coming through? Is it like pulling teeth, or is it coming through? It's, it, look, it's starting to come through. Let me talk about one really interesting initiative that um, um, teachers in CPPIB were both involved in, and it's something called the Long-Term Value Creation Index. Yeah. And a group of institutional investors got together, and we did a joint venture with, um, with S&P. And we set up a new index that was launched in, in January. And the only companies globally that are in that index are companies that um, meet certain criteria in terms of appropriate long-term disclosure, appropriate governance practices, uh, appropriate balance sheet management, so on and so forth. And we believe that companies that have those indicia will be more valuable in the future. And so what we did is we created an index. There's 246 global companies, including many Canadian companies, in that index. And then we put our money where our mouth was, and we collectively have invested in that index. Essentially, what we did is we took capital out of the MSCI or out of the S&P 500 and instead put it into this bespoke index. And what we're doing is saying, look, if, if your company follows these practices, is transparent, provides that type of information that we need, um, we are going to invest more in you. And what we're finding already is that more and more companies want to get into that index and are asking, what do we have to do to change our practices so that institutional investors like teachers, GIC, the Danish Pension Fund, et cetera, will put capital in. So, so we're using these types of tools to actually change behavior. And it's happening. And it's a new it's way happening. for your portfolio to, to have your public markets side of the business in, I guess, a more slightly more control because we're looking at the volatility that we see today. And if you have companies that you feel fundamentally are in that group, it just allows a little bit uh, more sleep at night, perhaps. Well, well, we're doing it day in and day out in terms of the fundamental decisions that we're making about stocks that we buy. But what this does is actually applies those same principles to the passive portfolio. And by the way, retail investors are going to be able to participate in that, too, because there's now ETFs being created right. off that index. So I think we're starting to see innovative approaches like that change market uh, market behavior. It's a, it's a virtuous circle. Um, please put up your hands if you have a question, and uh, just leave them up, and I'll let people come and gather those, those pieces of paper. I'm doing such a good job. There's no questions. Seriously? Come on. We've got a few. Um, Michael, in your most recent report, the, the public market side of the returns was, was the part that took a beating uh, amongst uh, most funds around the world. And you've decided to reduce your exposure in that part of it, I think, down to 53%. Any thoughts on further reductions for that or because of the volatility that we're seeing right now? Um, so the, we've had a target we've been working at, uh, Pamela, for the last uh, almost 10 years now to actually achieve a target of uh, public market, private market split. And so that, that target that you've referenced at 53% is pretty much right where we've wanted to, to get to. So frankly, I mean, I think um, part of what we just deal with today is just given the environment we're dealing with, it's more just trying to make sure that we're adjusting all of our portfolios to react to the market conditions and, and, and kind of be on top of that. Right. I'll got uh, one of the questions from the audience, so I'll, I'll just uh, go through this. Uh, you touched on tone at the top from pension funds, from the pension fund side. What 
do you do to test the tone at the bottom in your uh, investee company before and after you invest? Um, Ron, let's start there. Is that of importance? Uh, absolutely. Um, there's a number of things that we do. First of all, we have our own staff sit on the boards. Um, uh, depending on what percentage ownership we have, they sit on the boards. And actually, whoever sits on the board, uh, we have a designated ESG rep uh, that is identified as, as pushing the ESG agenda for us at the board level. Um, we bring in from our investee companies all of the legal counsels. We bring in all of the communications people. Um, and one of the reasons for that is is that uh, when we bring them in, we talk about how they're part of, effectively, quite frankly, a much larger group of people. We try and connect our portfolio companies to each other so that they can share ideas, share thoughts, uh, things that they have in common. Um, what we, we really try and make sure that we can add as much value as we can. There's lots of people that can write a check. But when we buy a company, our portfolio companies, what we really want to do is contribute as well as not only capital but value add. And so there's a lot of governance issues that we share with our portfolio companies. And that really culminates in one or two or three uh, meetings a year where we bring everybody to Toronto at the CEO, CFO levels and, and share knowledge in a room just like this for three days. Can I, jump in, can I jump in on that one just, yeah, just yeah, for a second? Yeah. Just to take it from a, a public markets perspective, I think I think all all the plans represented on the stage here also um, take our responsibilities as public market investors uh, very, very seriously. And I think that takes two forms. First is, and, and I couldn't let a morning go by without a hockey analogy, um, <laughs> but if you're going to play the game, you should care about the rules. And so the first thing I think that's really important is I think there's a real role for institutional investors, including the pension plans, to get involved in the rules of the game, uh, so to speak. Um, looking at what is, what is the regulation of our capital markets in this country, uh, the need for a national security regulator, for example. I think we're all involved um, in working with regulators, working with stock exchanges um, to ensure that we have appropriate rules in this country to have a high-functioning uh, capital market. There's a new Set. government in Alberta. Would they be any more likely to, to jump on I that? I hope so. I hope so, frankly. I in think in your a real, opinion, do you think there might? I think there's a real opportunity today um, with the makeup of the, the political makeup of the country um, to push for some of that um, better regulation of our capital markets. Because if we don't have it, um, it is just so important in terms of access to capital for our corporations in order to drive growth and prosperity. Secondly is... Um, and I'm not sure if that's what the question was getting to, but you know, we do also, you know, we're, we're long-term investors, and that means you, sometimes you just can't sell if you don't like what's going on. You have to get involved. You ha we, have a, we, we have to get involved, given our role in the capital markets, because of the precedent. So you saw it on issues uh, like the Barrick situation, on you know, what we thought was egregious executive compensation. We spoke out publicly, collectively, um, to try and make change there. Um, when you saw the collapse of the Magna dual class share structure, you saw um, teachers in CPPIB in particular um, going to court um, to try and change what we thought was egregious behavior. So we have a role to play. How as about do other with Bombardier? <laughs> well, I think, look, look, I think we've, we've spoken out, look, we have spoken out publicly time and again in our view of dual class share structures. Yeah. And if you want to, you know, see a example of long-term value destruction, need I say more? Helmut, can I go back to the the, 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 the question that was yeah. asked because I, I I think that where where Ron and Mark were going, when I when I think about you know I think this is an example of the sophistication that actually exists within the the pension community today. Is we I mean we we treat what we do as a business. So when you think about how it's actually structured and how it's staffed, those capabilities, whether it's you know from human resources through through legal or otherwise, the capability to actually get involved, to overlay policies and procedures, to make sure that compliance is there, that it fits our overall mandate, how we manage risk, all of those things, we don't you know we're not passive capital. We don't forego those when we put our money to work into the, into any entity. 
And so, I mean, I, frankly, I hope that, that part of that view is that when people, when we invest with those, those companies, they see that as real competitive advantage for them at the end of the day. Ver, you know, and I think there's quite a difference between when you're viewed as passive capital and when you're active as, as we are. Um, there's a lot of complexities and more as, as you expand globally and so on. How do you, how do you keep the costs in line, like any other business that you take seriously. You have to spend to make sure that you're covering your business properly, have the right talent and so on. That becomes more expensive. Is, is that always a conversation around the board table? Uh, cost? Cost is always a conversation <laughs> around around the table. You know, listen, any heated, any more heated now than it has been in the recent past? I wouldn't say that it's any more heated. I think there's always an appropriate level of attention on cost. I mean, for us, I mean, cost comes in, in, in two levels. We're, <clears throat> we're a pension plan. We have liabilities. We manage liabilities. We have a cost per member to manage, manage our plan. There's an expectation that that cost should be appropriate. We invest money on the other side, so we have a management expense ratio. There's an expectation that we would manage that within an appropriate range. So, you know, so both of those are balances, and every dollar we spend, every dollar that we spend as a, as a pension plan is a dollar out of our pensioner's pocket. So to suggest that, that, you know, that it doesn't uh, um, attract the attention in the boardroom from the senior management, we've talked, I mean, we've had this discussion collectively. You know, that, that role as a steward and that capital, I mean, is fundamentally important. So this isn't about, you know, the, about asset accumulation. It's about making sure that we're meeting the long, long-term liabilities at a very cost-effective, in a very cost-effective manner. Uh, I want to put some of the questions from the audience to you. When investing in overseas markets, how important is a local partner? You've addressed that to a certain extent. Maybe you can go into more detail. And also, are there particular geographies where you see strong potential in terms of addressable pipeline? Uh, Ron, let's start with you on the partner and particular countries. Um, uh, first of all, partners are critically important. Uh, we spend a lot of time. We all collectively spend a lot of time. That's why we partner with each other mm. and with locals. Uh, you know you, where each other live. It's kind of you can trust abs- each other. Absolutely. <laughs> at the end of the day. But but you, you have to, you have to pick your partner very very wisely. Um, so that's that's just that's that's the first point. Um, in terms of where are things really starting to work, um, it's obviously. India and uh, Mark's people have taken quite a quite a, a, a good lead in that, and we have a fair bit there as well. Um, but I will tell you that uh, we're still investing in China. We're still investing through Asia. Depending on the country, uh, Australia infrastructure, UK infrastructure, Europe infrastructure, um, South America is being watched very carefully right now. With us, we don't tend to be big thematics top down. We have people and partners everywhere, and we tend to find opportunities one at a time from the bottom up. And, and part so of that, that is because you have offices in so many places now, you can hunt for those deals a bit more. We've got partners and offices in a number of places, and we're out there hunting. And this becomes key. This comes back to the cost. Once you start going out of Toronto, the cost structure goes up very substantially. It's not cheap to be in multiple cities around the world and staffing these places. You've got to be very comfortable that um, over time the return profile is going to be worth it. One thing you do know is the collective capital that we have, if we were to only invest in our own backyard, we're not going to be able to get the return profile that we need. And so, or cap- the currency kickback. Yeah, exactly. So the, 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 global, the global opportunity set is critically important to stay on top of. Question from the audience. Does CPP or teachers have any interest in participating more actively in the tech and venture community? Omers, as we know, has, has uh, made that a huge part of their business. To each of you, Mark. Well, so first of all, uh, let me say, we are an investor in, in, uh, in technology. One of the issues that we have is scale. So for us, um, given the size of our fund in, in excess of $280 billion, um, it's hard for us to make very small investments. But actually, we are... Uh, at last count, actually the largest in, uh, venture investor in Canada. We do that indirectly um, through a partnership that we have with Northleaf Capital. We're also uh, uh, partnered um, with the, um, the Canadian Venture Fund uh, initiative that was uh, uh, put in place by the last federal government. And so we fund through third parties because to do it ourselves would be very, very difficult. We just right. we can't resource it. But it's certainly an area 
that we continue to, to uh, have interest in for everything from, from drug royalties um, to a little company that we invested in uh, in China called uh, Alibaba. Some of you may have uh, heard of it. Um, so um, it's an area that we uh, continue to fund, continue to be interested in. We can't do it quite the way that, that OMERS does, and it's really just, just a scale issue. So we do it through, uh, through third-party funds. And uh, I think at last count, we have over a billion dollars invested in, in, in Canadian, uh, uh, Canadian projects. Ron. In teachers' case, um, we do some through third parties, and we do uh, a fair chunk directly. Uh, a lot of it has been focused in places like uh, India, uh, China, where um, uh, when you're starting a new business or a new platform, a uh, technology platform, it immediately gets picked up by a billion people uh, in, in, a, in a nanosecond. Um, it's an area that I think we should do more of as we head down the road, but we've done a lot of it uh, around the world, for sure. No. Um, I think I'm very conscious to make sure everyone can leave right at 9 a.m., but I would like to put this, this question to each of you. The G20 this weekend didn't seem to make a whole lot of progress, um, but the question around how do we get the global economy to grow uh, was certainly front and center. Uh, Michael, what do you see as growth for the for the globe over the course of the next five years? Is there a way to kickstart this, or do we just tuck in for a slower slog? Well, I think I'm going to start on on, on the latter. I mean, I, I think that um, I do think that we're in for a for a, um, a slower growth in an environment that we're dealing with. So, you know, frankly, if we, you know, if we had something that approximated two two and a half percent growth, I think we'd be quite pleased with that. We'd love to see a, a level of the volatility that we actually experience in the in the marketplace. Uh, a little bit of that would uh, would help if it dissipate. Um, so, I think our our whole focus and our, our approach has really been to tuck in against the environment that we're that we're dealing with, mm -hmm. and try to make sure that we're very focused in the areas that we understand, where we have our people on the ground, the investments that we understand, and quite frankly, really try and deal with things not so much on adding to the portfolio but really the things that where we can manufacture returns where we have capital at work already, Pamela. Okay. And, Ron, your thoughts on, on what it will look like over the course of the next few years and how, how you manage that? Uh, it is going to be, in, in our view, it will be a tough environment. <clears throat> we, we are low for long. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the, the return profile will be low uh, for a while. This is the this is why having a global platform is of interest. I mean, China is still growing at right. five to five and a half percent. We the, think. The, uh, yeah. We think. Um, I, what I can tell you is that the, at the ground level, the deals that continue to come across, uh, there's, they're plentiful. Uh, we're seeing a lot of deals in Europe c continue on as well. Um, once again, we're investing for the long haul. We're investing one really good opportunity at a time with partners on a global scale. Um, I, I think global growth is going to be uh, slower. I think QE has kind of come to the end of its efficacy with negative interest rates all over the planet. Um, I think fiscal is going to have to be jump-starting a, a fair bit of what we're doing on a go-forward basis. But from a pure opportunity over the next five to seven years, <clears throat> we'll have to pick our opportunities very carefully. Mm -hmm. But they are out there. This is where the teams that we collectively have amongst us really start to make a difference. Because if they can find the opportunities and then they know how to add value to those acquisitions, fantastic. And you're finding this as well, Mark, but are there more people lining up for those opportunities? There are more funds around there looking for great deals. Well, well first of all, I, I think, first of all, I, I agree with almost everything that, that Ron and, and Michael said. Um, I think actually, um, for, first of all, the limits of monetary policy, I think, are have been reached or close to being reached. We, we need uh, structural changes in some economies around the world. But I'm going to put a pretty optimistic lens on it. I mean, everybody's sort of worried about what's going on in capital markets. You know what? The underlying economy in most parts of the world ain't so bad. The most important economy in the world, south of the border, is humming uh, right now. Um, you have a low inflationary environment. Um, you have um, almost uh, full employment uh, in the United States of America. Um, and the reality is for Canada, um, that's a pretty good thing, especially with a 75 cent or thereabout uh, dollar. So uh, I don't think things are all bad in North America. China, 
it doesn't matter what number you believe. 6.9% uh, was the official number last year. If it's 5%, that's 5% growth on a $12 trillion economy. Think about that. Think about how much um, that is uh, contributing to global growth. We're talking uh, from a policy perspective in this country about uh, developing deeper ties. Uh, the Minister of Trade has talked about uh, potential for a treat free trade agreement between uh, Canada and China. So you've got the two you know, big engines of the global economy you know, running pretty well uh, right now. Issues in Japan, to be sure. Uh, issues uh, in Europe that need you know, fundamental structural reforms. But by and large, things aren't quite as bad, um, I think, as, as people think. And for investors, if you take that long-term view, I think this today, because of the volatility in markets, is probably the best time we've seen to invest for long-term institutional capital that we've seen probably since the financial crisis. And so um, for us, we're actually quite optimistic about this environment from an economic point of view and from an investment point of view. Okay. Thank you to each of you. That was very interesting. I hope you found it interesting. Thanks, it's exactly 9 o'clock. I want to thank you. I think we've got most of the questions in there, and I'll let, uh, I'll let Danny take over. Have a good day. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. A conscious of time and the reference to America, saying a thank you used to be a lot easier before a certain, I used to just come up and say things were super. They were great. But then a certain U.S. candidate in the presidential election robbed those words of any real meaning in the human world. <laughs> so I have to actually think about what I'm going to say to folks, which is, number one, thank you very much for your time. Number two, what we've accomplished today is really a reflection of your expertise. When I think about Ron's comments in terms of thinking about a real framework for long-term investment. I think about Michael when he talked about the specific example of how you can use that framework to develop something like the Convention Center. And then finally, Mark's comments on global capital not being in competition with Canadian capital, but being complementary to Canadian capital. You really can see how these folks working together can make something real happen. Pamela, thank you very much for your incredible expertise in navigating the discussion. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors, of course, Tories LLP, Societe Generale, and Ernst & Young. And thank you all for your time. Have a great morning. This meeting is now adjourned.